everyone, and welcome to our latest episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Ali McCluskey. Today, I'm joined by two-time guest, Dan Westgarth, COO at Deal. Deal makes growing remote and international teams effortless by simplifying international hiring, compliance, and payments all in one platform. This means businesses can hire anyone, anywhere, as independent contractors or full-time employees, compliantly, in minutes, and with the ability to pay them in over 120 currencies. The company has raised over $631 million from the likes of A16Z, Spark Capital, Y Combinator, Co2, Elad Gill, Nat Friedman, Alexis Ohanian, and Daniel Gross, among others, most recently closing their $425 million Series D this past October. Dan joined Deal in 2020 after spending what he calls his postgraduate education at Revolut. For more on that chapter of his life, I've linked his 2019 debut on the Wharton FinTech podcast in the show notes. As for today's episode, we discuss Dan's time at Revolut and his lessons learned leading the early US expansion, meeting the founders of Deal and building conviction that they'd be the team to tackle global hiring and payroll, how Deal replaces long email chains, generic contracts, individual wire transfers, and foreign subsidiaries, and instead enables quick and compliant hiring of employees living anywhere in the world, the effects of the pandemic on demand for foreign talent, how Deal thinks about company culture when it has 450 employees working in more than 50 countries, why Dan values investor diligence as it relates to his own technical operations, and a whole lot more. So with that, let's jump in. Well, Dan, it's great to have you back for your second appearance on the Wharton FinTech podcast. How are you and where are you calling in from? I am good. Thanks for having me. I'm calling in from New York City. The best. So excited to get back there soon. Have a couple months left and I'm going to, you know, obviously utilize the time in Philly, but uh, very much miss the Manhattan scene and sounds like it's it's back and thriving. Back and thriving and you have that beautiful um, blue Manhattan sky this morning. It's uh, It's gorgeous out here. Oh, that's amazing to hear. Well, like I said, we're excited to have you back with us. Last time you were on the show was in March of 2019, when you were still the GM of North America for Revolut. So clearly a lot has changed, and I'm excited to see how much your perspectives on the fintech ecosystem have changed in that time. So to start, let's quickly catch folks up on your Revolut days. I know Revolut was your first job at a uni, so tell us a little bit about how you got there and what those years were like. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting story, actually. A very opportunistic one. I'd always been uh, interested in, in technology and tech companies. And the Revolut, the way Revolut came into my life was quite an interesting one. I, I remember being quite lost as an undergrad and trying to plan my next career move. Had had an offer from a, a well-regarded real estate commercial real estate company. Didn't really want to go for it. Wasn't really excited about it. Decided to go on uh, a trip to Southeast Asia, which a lot of um, British uni students do um, after undergrad. And I was looking for um, a travel card, something where I could load my money and spend in these um, foreign countries without a high fee. And I found I found Revolut, um, which was in a kind of wow. private beta. So I applied to the access to private beta. And this was just such a kind of nice development because it fulfilled both my needs of A, the travel card, but B, also um, a career that was exciting. So went over to Southeast Asia for about three weeks, um, did the whole backpacking thing, used the product and loved it. Of course, there were a few bugs and bumps around the edges. And that provided this really nice kind of almost platform for me to get to know 
the guys that were developing Revolut. And at the time, there were four or five people. So, you know, went back and forth over email and started to get to know um, the people. I get to know Nikolai, the, the, the CEO, Vlad, the uh, chief technology officer, um, Veronique, that was head of partnerships at the time, a couple of the ops guys. And one thing led to another and um, they offered me a job. So uh, I joined as an analyst. I think I was 21, 22 years old. Didn't know much. I uh, didn't know really what to expect. And uh, I loved it. It was, it was an amazing opportunity. I think what's really, uh, what I really loved about Revolut was that they were reinventing an industry which has been around for centuries, if not thousands of years. And nobody in that founding team had done retail banking or, or card payments before. So we were learning it all on the go. We were breaking, yeah, breaking it down into, into first principles and fundamentals. And it was just, just amazing. You know, Revolut was kind of like my postgraduate education. Um, it was really cool and got a lot of exposure to some amazing people. Well, it's amazing. I mean, you clearly brought the perspective of the end user, right? So I'm sure that right. was incredibly valuable that you had an idea of the problems that you were looking to solve. So you could really bring that, that perspective to the forefront. So again, you, you left as the GM of North America, but I know you were involved in a number of expansions and Last time you were on the show, you were speaking with Peter Jankowski about why Europe was such a fertile ground for challenger banks at that time, but why North America was a little bit of a different beast. So as you look back on the Revolut efforts in Canada and the US, which have, you know, to different degrees had had some challenging success, is there anything that you think the company should have done differently or lessons you guys might have learned the hard way while you were still there? Oh, for sure. There were multiple learnings. The biggest... I think, was the product and marketing narrative of Revolut in North America didn't necessarily jive with the, the customer base. And I understand now Revolut's doing pretty well in the US from outside. Um, but at the time, we approached it um, in a very technical way. So we kind of built out a specification of what we wanted to launch, the different payment methods, different functionalities, different products. Um, and it was kind of like filling that spec sheet up with functionality that we could use um, to be better um, than our competitors and beat them in a comparison. And technically, Revolut is and has a lot more functionality than say Cash App, but never got that, never got on that same growth trajectory. And at the time that I kind of left the Revolut business, Cash App downloads were really spiking, more than 10,000, I think, a day in the US. We built this really amazing technical product but never really got that product and, and growth um, narrative right. And so much so, you know, I would kind of meet friends and meet people that had been born and grew up in America and didn't really have too much international exposure. And I would show them what I'm working on. I'd show them the project, show them the product. And they would say, well, okay, like, like what is it? Like, is it? Is it a bank? Is it a Venmo? Is it something else? Like, they couldn't really comprehend what it was. And I think that's really, really important. We talk about know your customer and AML and compliance, but really you need to know your customer from, marketing and growth perspective. And just taking a step back from that, well, how would we have done it differently? I think local market expertise and local market knowledge is so, so valuable. You send a bunch of Europeans over to the US to launch a fintech app or vice versa. Um, unless you have that local experience in there, in the mix, I think it's going to be really tough. Yeah, there's so much to unpack there, but I think that that's a great summary. <laughs> and I know that you you sort of left Revolut when it was hitting those strides and growing like crazy, and you'd learned so much. You said it was your finishing school after you know your undergrad um, equivalent. So 
you're leading these critical expansions. How did Deal get on your radar and what prompted you to make a jump at that point? Yeah, it's a pretty funny story. A mutual investor introduced me to the Deal team. It was Oliver Samwa from Rocket Internet GFC. So I, I remember very clearly I was on a plane to San Francisco. It was the first time I'd hooked up to, to Wi-Fi, actually, on, on, on flight. Um, oh, this is pretty cool. And I got, the, got an email from, uh, from Oliver introducing me to the founder of this company, Deal. I thought, you know, I'll go meet the guys. I, I've got a free afternoon. I'm not crazy busy right now. So I went and met Alex and Schwo, uh, the founders of the company. We kind of hung out. We were meant to meet for 30 minutes over coffee. We ended up hanging out for more like two hours and just really hit it off personally and also from a mission perspective. I thought what they were, I, I kind of saw the same vision in what I saw of Revolut um, five or six years ago, where Revolut were taking this industry that's been around for so long and taking an internet-first approach. And what Alex and Tro laid out was very, very similar. PEOs, global payroll, labor leasing, employment as a service, like all of this stuff fundamentally has been around for, for thousands of years, like since Roman time, probably even before that, I, I don't know. Um, but to take all of those concepts on an internet-first approach, on an electronic platform, and be able to scale it into 100 plus countries all in one go was really, really exciting. So yeah, met the guys, um, we kind of hit it off. Um, and over time, you kind of, I think you kind of build up that relationship. I think that's pretty, pretty typical in the hiring cycle now. If you're hiring, um, if you're hiring an executive or you're hiring someone um, that's created some really kind of notable things, uh, the hiring process is, is, is less, well, it's still about the fundamental tests and steps, but there's also this really, really big and important human part of getting to know the person that you're going to be working with and really deciding if you're going to have fun with them. And if you're, if you're really happy and prepared to spend that much time working alongside them. And we, we proved that. Alex Schroer and I actually lived together um, wow. for, uh, for quite a few weeks in London. Yeah, we lived and worked together and we, we built some really, really cool stuff during that time. Wow, that's awesome to hear. I mean, it's great advice and very topical to me and my classmates who are trying to navigate, of course, next steps and finding that culture fit. I think you're right. It's so interesting when you have these industries where there's such inertia that no one's taking on the incumbents. And then it's really about the grit and just sheer willingness to work together to make something brand new happen and completely reinvent something. So that's awesome. So, you know, you talked about it clearly being a function of getting along with the team and believing in sort of their ability to execute, but what gave you the confidence that deal was going to win global payroll? Because, and give us a sense of were there competitors at that time or sort of what was the landscape like? And again, how are you sure that this team, just a couple of people at the time was really going to make it happen? I think that's a really interesting point. So there's kind of two areas that are really important to me. So one is that one is the industry we've kind of probed that on both Revolut and Deal. And then second is that is the team. And I think a good team can be building anything. It doesn't have to be a certain product or in a certain industry. And ideally that team or a large theme within or a large group within has not done this before and is not coming from that industry. Why? Because then they really drill down into the fundamentals of what's going on and then re redesign it. You know, they, they, they unpack it and then they build it again and they build it better and stronger and, and more scalable. So I was really, really impressed by the founding team over there and the deal. And um, uh, they're all still with us today. All of the early team um, are still with us and still building and still creating. So it's, uh, it's been great. Well, that's awesome to hear. I think 
most folks would have been felt lucky to join one rocket ship like a Revolut in their career and ride that the whole way. And you're now two for two. So it's pretty amazing. And I'd say, let me know next time you're hitting a casino because I'd love to come <laughs> with and ride some of that luck. But um, let's dive deeper into deal. So zooming out for the benefit of our listeners who might be less familiar, can you just give us the background on deal and what exactly the company does? Yeah, sure. So I very simply, a tagline is we help companies hire anyone anywhere. That can mean a few different few different things. First of all, I'm going to explain what pay anyone anywhere means and then use a comparison between the two to explain what we're doing. So if you want to pay someone, that service can be offered by a bank, it can be offered by a fintech, and they're typically funding an account with them and then they're sending money from A to B. And there are various sort of compliance checks which need to take place. AML, sanction screening, anti-fraud, all of this kind of stuff. But fundamentally, that transaction can be very quick. Now, if I want to hire someone as a business in another country, that transaction is incredibly complicated. The compliance overhead there is everything that I've just described, but with added layers of labor law, counting and taxation, and other um, regulations that might be set forth by local government. And typically, in order to do it, you would need to have an entity in said country. So to give you an example, if I'm an um, American business and I want to hire someone in Mexico, the way that I would typically do that is I would engage my corporate lawyer or my startup lawyer and say, hey, I want to set up in Mexico. And I'm going to say, okay, cool. We're going to incorporate a subsidiary in Mexico for you. We're going to need you to get a local office. We're going to need you to get a local council, probably the counterpart or affiliated firm. And we're going to need you to hire people that maybe we're going to recommend you send out a general manager or you send out a country manager to kind of set up the operation and make sure it's working. With Deal, we remove the need for that. And we kind of sell that as a service. So companies can come to us and say, I want to hire someone in Mexico and Canada and Argentina and Brazil. Um, and we can do it in, in a few minutes. We've established our own entities in these countries and we will hire that person on behalf of our customer. That's one of the models we do. Second model we do is we've built our own international um, legal framework, which we call international independent, which allows companies to compliantly engage international independent contractors. And I think that what we've seen is we saw this market and this flow exist pre-pandemic, but it wasn't done in a clean way. Typically, we would see founders of companies or small, smaller startups engage contractors in foreign countries. They would use a contract off LegalZoom, or maybe they got it from their corporate law firm. Maybe they've amended it, redlined it a bit, and then they would, they would send the guy a wire for $5,000. No level of compliance around that. There's no system of record. The thing becomes very messy and almost murky. Um, we productize that, and now our clients can use the platform to literally hire anyone anywhere <laughs> under any of these two mechanisms very quickly. Yeah, so there's the there's the compliant onboarding piece with the localized employment contracts. There's a payroll piece. There's an HR admin sort of local benefits piece. So you're covering a lot of ground. But just to clarify one point, when you're saying you're take you're stripping out the need for all of that local headcount operationalizing because deal becomes what I the term I think is the employer of record. Can you just explain that a bit more in terms of so deal is technically the employer in that case? Just explain a little bit how that works. Correct. On the employer of record solution, we are technically the employer. So 
the employee is employed by Ideal Poland LCD, but then it provides services for, say, the U.S. business, which is which is hiring them. And we do we do this in about a hundred countries. It becomes really sophisticated. You manage. If you think about the expectations of the different customers we've got here. Well, we've got a U.S. U.S. customer, U.S. people team, people organization, onboarding a Polish employee through Deal. Deal is the legal entity onboarding it, but that onboarding process needs to be synced with both parties. And the expectations are materially different. To give you an example, in Poland, every employee has to complete a medical test, and that medical test has to be validated before they can start work. So, from a product perspective, well, how do we how do we manage that expectation for the U.S. client that has never seen that the U.S. company has never seen a medical test required before someone starts work, and how do we manage the expectation of the employee that U.S. companies just onboarding to happen rapidly, and that's where a lot of product comes into it, which is really interesting. I love that example because it highlights sort of one of it brings to life one piece of it, but. Can you just, and I, sorry, but I have to use the phrase because it's just too apt here. Compare deal or no deal for us. So when I'm a company, what does my tech stack look like if I don't use deal? And then what do you replace if I, when I do become a customer? Yeah, so there are a few in- incumbent platforms out there that have been around for a few decades. They're not internet-first platforms. So that onboarding process that I've just mentioned would typically be done over email or, for, or telephone. That's not going to scale. And I think there are some really good parts of that that we've wanted to extract. So making sure that it's a high-touch, what kind of white-glove process, we have that ideal for the clients that want it. But then we also have it for the clients that just want to click through very quickly and onboard very, very rapidly. But the alternative is, is the old-fashioned model of like, and I've been there and lived it. You know, Let's send the GM to America. Let's put him in a hotel room for three months and give him the, the mandate of, securing an office and hiring a team of 50 people. Like that's the alternative. And that, I think that works for very pointed expansion um, efforts where you want to really go in and penetrate a country. But if you want to hire an international team, which exists around the world, our, our uh, platform is much better. Yeah, I want to dig into it. And I found this super interesting about Deal that Deal actually went through Y Combinator back in winter of 2019. So the company predates the pandemic and the massive catalyst that that's obviously been for remote work. And to your point, you know, maybe it's not one concentrated expansion to one country, but you're actually picking up different contract workers or full-time hires in a variety of places just because we've equalized and leveled the playing fields in our newly remote era. But what were the original use cases for international and remote hiring pre-COVID when Deal was coming up in the world? I had the personal realization of how big the market was when I saw a client from Saudi Arabia using Deal to pay their team in India. That was like, wow, this is this market is enormous. And we have all different kinds of industries. We have traditional technology, banking. We have gig economy, we have influencers, we have the aviation industry. Aviation industry is really interesting because the legal domicile of the, of the crew is, is, is always tricky to, to work out and um, the different currencies they want to get paid in and then how do they do expense management. Um, and that actually segues me into like another kind of product that we've built. Well, we've built this business not too dissimilar from a fintech, so it really can, really can scale. So we have, connect, we have very sophisticated payment rails. We're able to and invoice um, the businesses um, in multiple different currencies in multiple different countries around the world. And we're able to exchange those currencies and then make sure the employees are paid on time. And we've also offered some really cool fintech products in their consumer fintech products. So 
and we've launched a visa debit card. So uh, workers in Southeast Asia can get paid onto that card. Uh, that's a game changer because they're able to spend with that card on the moment that they're paid. Very popular in, in the Philippines. And we've combined that with a product we call Deal Advance, where effectively, effectively early wage access. And we've had some really cool stories of, of remote workers that are earning 10, 20 times the average salary in their village or town. Um, and then they're using these deal products to power the local economy effectively. Um, they're giving, issuing the cards to their, um, their family and friends. And then those cards are actually being used kind of in, in production in real, in real life situations. So it's really, really cool to see. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, it just goes to show the power of just paying people faster can make yeah. all the difference. And then and then the pandemic hits. Every company starts remote hiring. So for all intents and purposes, your TAM explodes. We talked about all the reasons that pre-pandemic there was a need. And I know SF talent got super expensive. So companies started increasingly hiring in the Brazil and Ukraine and Nigeria's of the world. But then again, the pandemic hits. Everybody is pursuing this strategy um, because, like we said, geographic borders just cease to matter. So what were those first few months like during the pandemic? I think that's really when you started. So probably your first few months. But just take us back to the strategy, hiring, just general feeling. So yeah, I'll start with customers. I think we saw larger customers being slower to react to the pandemic. And the way that I think about it is kind of banks being one of the largest type of customers that we might have. They took a long time to kind of react and change policy. And a lot of them still haven't done, um, even at this point. Then we had very, very small customers, which were typically uh, startups at seed or pre-seed stage. They were very, very quick, like, wow, we're going to do this tomorrow. And we've never really had a growth problem. We've, we've been growing very, very quickly since then. And I think that the pandemic was a catalyst for something which was never going to happen. So that's that's really cool. I think what's more interesting is how we thought about hiring our own team. So we're about 400 people now, uh, about 450 if you include incoming hires. In and about 50 countries, I think, right? Yeah, geographically located in 50 countries, which is, is really amazing. We have, I think if I go furthest east, we have Japan, and if I go furthest west, we have Hawaii. So that's pretty much everywhere. everywhere Covering it all, yeah. Some guys in uh, French Polynesia. But yeah, it's 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 really interesting to see. I mean, we're hiring in we're hiring our own team members in in some countries that um, I didn't necessarily know existed, and then some countries which aren't even recognised by others, which is is really cool. For example, Kosovo in Eastern Europe isn't is only recognised by a handful of countries, yet we have uh, people getting paid there. So that's an interesting one to navigate. So yeah, truly powering this uh, globalization. And you use your own platform, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we've been hiring pretty rapidly on the customer experience side. So ramping up um, customer support specialists, uh, trainers, QAs, all this kind of stuff. Um, being able to hire someone in no matter what country they reside in under like five minutes is just amazing for me as CEO. I can, I, I can hire, um, I can literally probably do it in under 60 seconds at this point. Well, it's very cool too to see that the proof is in the pudding, right? You're using your own yeah. product uh, for your own benefit. Oh, yeah. It all it all comes full circle there. So I'll, I'll ask the sort of belabored question. I know Deal has become somewhat of a thought leader in the future of work arena, and you know even I think has the all remote podcast to feature some remote advocates. So 
How much of remote working, borderless working, do you think is a phase versus what's the permanent change? And have any trends or the research on this sort of surprised you at all? Yeah, I think the research specific to the US really surprised me. I thought the US would would return to office pretty quickly, but we found that have not. Even in even in New York, I have quite a lot of friends that are happy and comfortable and like working from home every day. Um, I personally like to go into a workspace. I think that was the biggest uh, surprise for me. But I think the, the cross-border stuff that we're supporting, um, that's here to stay. It's just such a good deal for both sides. And that's a, that's a pun. But it's just such a good deal for both sides of the transaction, right? Both the remote, both the worker and the, and the employer. It's, it's really, really good. I mean, I have friends that were living in, in San Francisco and they moved back to Mexico City. They've got lovely, lovely places to live in the Condesa Roma district. And uh, they're not so sensitive on on salary, right? And their employers, their employers like that, especially when they're working in, uh, in startups and startup projects. Yeah, to me, it feels like the ultimate perk and a very easy way to build a lot of employee love, respect, appreciation, just to let people live where they want to live, right? And I know that I'm curious to see what happens with some of the immigration freezes because I know, and, and those being lifted, because I know that that put a lot of companies in interesting situations where they couldn't actually relocate employees that they wanted to. And so they needed a product like deal. So I'm curious to see when borders start reopening more, how much of that will remain. We talked a little bit about the 400 employees, 450 and count it and growing that, that deal has in the 50 countries. So I'm sure you had to navigate a lot of building that corporate culture. So talk to us about some of the driving values and how you sort of maintain a culture with such a distributed workforce and, and what that journey has been like as you scaled. Yeah, there's a couple of interesting points here. So um, given we've used our own tools to hire all of those people, we didn't establish a people function within deal for quite a long time. In fact, it was post 200 people before we had anyone within the people organization. How is that possible? I think it's a combination of empowering um, hiring managers and people managers to take ownership of, of HR and people related stuff. And then also, also the tooling. So we automated absolutely everything we, we could um, using our own platform and using some other um, communication tools and whatnot. And that story in itself is interesting, but it segues me into something else, which is cool. I think because we remote first and because we've really promoted that ownership onto people managers that has created a really really powerful function i'm oh, sorry culture a really powerful culture and um i think about 300 people into the story we sat down and, and decided to to take and extract the key theme within deal and form what we call deal, deal principles so we have i think eight principles um, which lay out exactly what we look for when we hire, but also what we practice when we're working and working alongside one another. And I, and I think that that really um, reflected how we're working as an organization. And it, it, works, re- it works really, really well. It's, uh, it's a really fun place to be. Yeah, it's so interesting. I'm actually taking a course with Ethan Mollick, who's a very well-known famous professor here at Wharton. And effectively, he puts us into simulations where chaos ensues. And you can, you know, without rigorous rubrics for how to act, people resort to instinct or, or past experiences. And so having that set of values and having that set of North stars for people to fall back on actually can make a huge difference so that you don't get caught up in the minutia of the day-to-day and that you can remember the why and, you know, what you're all connected to. So 
Um, I think that's really interesting because you hear some folks that hire a you know head of people as sort of employee you know, less than 10. So it's great to see all the different flavors of how it can work out. But I want to transition into your role on the operation side. You're the current COO. So what exactly falls under your remit and what stands out to you as some of your biggest accomplishments so far? Yeah. Ultimately today we have um, financial technologies. So uh, this is kind of my, my bread and butter, moving money around the world, exchanging currencies so that you everyone gets, gets paid on time. The, the deal card that I mentioned, cash advance, treasury, all this kind of stuff. But there's something that was very natural to me to stand up and build. And we and we built something which which is kind of way ahead of our competitors from the get-go. And we're, we're really proud of that. And we've got some really kind of cool innovations, which kind of exclusively or independently are cool on their own. Like even disconnected from all of the hiring stuff we're doing and remote work and globalization, just the, the fintech technologies are really, are really, really cool. And then we have the kind of core operations team, which looks after payroll cycling, ensuring that um, taxes are calculated correctly, withheld correctly, making sure we're paying the various other counterparties involved in the payroll, because it's not just the employee, right? There's a, there's a tax authority, social security, pension, healthcare, all of this kind of stuff. And then the customer experience, customer experience team. So customer support, employee experience, service operations, enablement, quality training, all that kind of good stuff. I was looking after kind of people for a little bit, but now we have that people team, which is which is good. But I don't get so involved in product. Um, product is is under um, the CEO and CTO. We're really laser focused on on, on operating, and and we we practice this uh, uh, the principle of being extremely problem focused and identifying the biggest impact problem, going out and solving that, and just just repeating to constantly and incrementally improve the efficiency of the business. Anything that stands out to you is just. This is when I knew I was doing a great job as COO and I've earned my paycheck and I'm crushing it. Uh, yeah, I think it's a couple of things that I, that I look at. So it's the, the speed in which we iterate. So we always optimize for speed and learning a deal. I think that the rate in which we launch new products, new countries, new corridors, hired really good people at rate of change, I'm really, really proud of. That's something that I believe I, I, no one else could do as good as me in this sense, I think. Um, and then the other thing is the health and the efficiency of the various things that we have running, whether it's payments, health efficiency, or payroll data cleanliness, or compliance in a certain in a certain part. I think that seeing the incremental change over time, because we move so quickly, seeing that improve over time and get, you know, we're really shaving off basis points of of efficiencies, but seeing that and crushing those metrics is something that I'm also really proud of. Yeah, that's amazing. Great. I want to. I want to talk about the fundraising process as well and see if you were close to that at all, because it's been quite a year for deal, raising a $156 million Series C in April, then your $425 million Series D in October, which quadrupled deal's valuation to a, you know, a, a sizable, decent $5.5 billion. And I heard that the, you weren't even actively fundraising for the Series D and that CO2 basically approached you guys. So what's been the overall fundraising climate? What's it been like? What's the process felt like for you? Just any takeaways you have from that would be really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely a technical ops guy rather than um, investor relations or like all that kind of stuff. So from a technical perspective, it's really interesting to see how investors look at the business and how investors size the business and then also diligence the business. So in all of the rounds that you've mentioned, 
investors have appointed uh, you know, their corporate law firm, corporate counsel, to undertake very thorough reviews of the business model of how we're doing what we're doing. I think that that's really interesting because each time that happens, everything that you, you built and designed and are operating goes through goes through another validation. Of course, there are many validations of all of this um, stuff that we've built and that we're running. But going through these additional valuation, um, validations by some of uh, the most prestigious lawyers in America, I think is a really, really interesting and fulfilling process. So that's kind of my major takeaway from the, from the fundraising that's, that is happening. Yeah, that's really cool. It's an extra check and balance on the system when you get outside sort of third-party seals of approval. Well, we've we've covered a ton of content, and I you know would be remiss not to include our, our typical rapid fire rounds when we'll get some of your candid off the cuff answers to a couple more random questions for us to get to know you a bit better. So let's start off with what is the worst deal pun you've heard someone make, and you can't say mine. From earlier in this episode. Uh, it's what's the deal with deal. I hear it too often and I don't like it. <laughs> Fair enough. I was having some fun in the background thinking of all the ways that I would work that into marketing. Um, swiftly moving on, who is someone that you admire in the fintech space? It's got to be it's got to be Nikolai Stronsky. Nikolai, we trust. We uh, we use Revolut at Deal and uh, I still use the product daily. It's got to be Nikolai. That's awesome. Just to continue to have those forces and those great mentors in your life. So from what I hear, you do a bit of angel investing. So what's the latest company you have invested in? What's interesting about it? Uh, the last one was Pledge. Um, that's founded by a bunch of ex-Revolute guys. And they are providing a solution to help companies contribute to Carbon Zero. Oh, wow. Cool. We'll have to check it out. And, and Pledge, hopefully you listen to this episode. Let's be in touch. Figure out ways to get you involved in more in FinTech. And, and we'll, we'll end it with, if you were just graduating uni today, with all the hindsight that you've gathered over the years and amazing choices you've made, what advice would you give to yourself about finding that first job? Do something which truly excites you. If it's not exciting, if it's not top of mind, and you're not eager to tell every single person you meet about it, um, it's probably not going to be a good fun, and you're not going to realize um, your career potential as fast as you can. I love that, and I will be. Writing that down on a sticky note and keeping it next to my computer every day until I graduate. So I appreciate that. Well, Dan, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you again. It's been very cool to see this episode serve as sort of a time capsule in your own career trajectory, and you'll be able to compare March 2019 to now. And and hopefully we'll we'll see you again when you're you know hit another amazing milestone. So really appreciate you you being on, and and hopefully if you're ever in, in Philly at some point, we'll welcome you to campus. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. To show your support, please consider rating the show, leaving us a review, or engaging with us on social media. It meaningfully helps spread the word to more listeners, which helps us continue to source our legendary guests. If you're looking for more content from Wharton FinTech, you can find us on Twitter, Medium, LinkedIn, and Instagram, all at Wharton FinTech. There you'll find interviews, articles, and most importantly, a list of ways to collaborate with us as we continue to analyze and amplify as many vantage points on the industry as we can. As always, we also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Raphael Austria. Signing off, I'm your host, Ali McCluskey, wishing you well.